to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Implications of her yes and the cost um, of her yes and really what we discussed is that there is fundamentally a posture in life that Mary um, uh, uh, showed us, and that is that there are t- most of us, or there are ways to live in which you grasp and control and hold on tightly to that which we call life, and then there's a whole other approach to life, which is about surrendering and being open. And one uh, commentator says that when she responds to the angel's announcement that she will give birth to this this son, she says, "I am the Lord's servant. Let's do this." And that is for us uh, just an encouragement, a posture in life that we can be open to God. Um, speaking and directing our lives. And so that was last week. Um, what happens in the book of Luke is what we're doing is we're kind of giving you snapshots for 22 weeks of the theme that, uh, or many themes that Luke is intending to, to show us as we receive this unique gospel. And so what happens in the story is Luke uh, then tells the story of Mary um, after this whole experience happens and she sees her, her cousin Elizabeth. Um, she breaks out into song and dance and she uh, truly, she, that's what you you do in scripture is you break out into song and dance. She has the Magnificat is what it's called. Um, if you recall this in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 where she basically uh, discusses or prophesies about what God is going to do in human history. Um, and it's not really just a song. It's actually a thunderous war cry. Um, and it's absolutely beautiful. And then Zechariah's mouth is open when his son is born. JB, John the Baptist, not Justin Bieber. Some of you were like, I believe. And... Um, <laughs> Oh, gosh, this is going to be a long morning. (laughs) This is why I've got a PowerPoint. What is Christmas all about? So this morning, uh, Christmas is around the corner. If you haven't seen the Starbucks Red Cups or if you haven't noticed the commercials that they've been playing since, I don't know, Halloween or the decorated, uh, you know, stores that we've seen decorated since the day after Halloween. It seems like um, the Christmas season is starting earlier and earlier. And there's something about Christmas that makes us really nice, except at malls and when we're trying to find parking lots or parking spots in the parking lot. Um, people tend to be a little more aggressive during this time of year when they're driving. Would you agree? Um, anyways, there, there is something about the, the, the spirit in the air around Christmas. I mean, it makes people nicer. People want to go and serve different places and they want to um, go to soup kitchens and, you know, give to charities and um, it's interesting because for me, as I look at, you know, culture and society, it seems like it's getting more and more difficult to really understand what Christmas is all about. And this morning, I want to talk about the Christmas story, because in the midst of a culture that uh, starts Christmas season, the day after Halloween, it's like we just skip through a season of Thanksgiving when um, advertisers are using this consumer holiday to push us to buy more and more stuff when The church is more concerned about trees being pagan and, uh, you know, fighting for the right to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. And when we're teaching series on five ways to survive Christmas and your family during the holiday season. And when the media is more concerned about Santa being black or white, it seems like we miss the story. And we talk about Jesus and this beautiful nativity scene where Mary just gave birth 
um, and she's glowing and this baby's not swollen or crying and Joseph isn't looking, you know, out of it with donkeys next to him. Instead, he's transcendent and there's this white baby Jesus with a halo. You wrapped in an American flag. We miss. I found an ornament at my house with that. It's horrible. Horrible. We miss, yeah, America, we miss, we miss what Christmas is all about. So what is Christmas all about? And to answer this question, we're going to read the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. But before that, I want to give you some backdrop, background. Uh, if, we were, if we were reading this in the first century, everything that Luke writes, we would get immediately. It's like, it would be, if imagine a movie and, and you know, you're in the present tense, the story's unveiling itself, but then like a memory pops out and they go back to the past and they show you the scene of the past or they give you kind of a wide narrative where you see where it takes place in the context of the actual story. So I want to give us the larger narrative of the Christmas story and hopefully challenge our view of Christmas this morning. Okay, you with me? Okay, so to begin, we're going to talk about to what is Christmas all about? Let's start with land and empires. I know you thought that was coming, so here we go. Land and empires. So there's this tiny piece of land in the Middle East. And it's really an insignificant piece of land, except for the fact that throughout history, this tiny piece of land um, directed, the, directed the trade flow between nations and empires and continents. So if Africa down here wanted to trade with Europe up here, it would have to go through this tiny piece of land right here, Africa to Europe. If Europe wanted to trade with Africa, it would have to go through this tiny piece of land here. If, if Africa wanted to trade to Asia over here, it would have to go to that through this tiny piece of land. And Asia through Africa or Asia to Europe or Europe to Asia. In other words, this tiny piece of land directed the flow of trade between nations. So if you wanted to control the trade of nations... This piece of property was a valuable piece of property. This is what we call Israel or Palestine or ancient Israel. This tiny piece of land controlled the trade routes between nations and empires throughout history. And throughout history, nations occupied this territory because it was so valuable. Here's a list of some of them. The Egyptians, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, the Seleucids. All throughout history, everybody and their mother marched through this, this territory and occupied it at one point in history. And it's absolutely fascinating when you read that this tiny piece of land was under foreign occupation for a long time. Now, if you were the Israelites, you'd be tired of being occupied by foreign oppressors. Would you agree? I mean, that's a long list. And we're missing one crucial list, which we'll get to in a second, the Romans. And um, every time one of these nations came in, it was simply a reminder of the, the time that there were slaves in Egypt. It was a reminder of the promises that God made them, that they would in fact be a nation to bless all other nations, that their God is the one to, true creator God, that their God would set them apart from all other nations and other nations would rule them or they would rule other nations, that the king, their God king would rule all other kingdoms. This is what was promised in the Old Testament, but nation after nation after nation, empire after empire occupied this territory, making it very frustrating for those that lived in Israel at the time. And if you recall, uh, at one point in their history, um, they were exiled. Those that lived in the north were exiled to Babylon. And um, they were once again slaves serving another foreign ruler in another country. 
And during that period, the prophets, where we get the Old Testament prophetic literature, they began to speak of a time when God would act in human history once again. The prophets promised God would come back into the human story, back into the Israelites' history, and bring liberation, and bring freedom, and justice, and peace, and prosperity. And, and their, the, the, the promises of that nation would, would be fulfilled. But they get freed from exile, and they come back, and they rebuild the temple. And the Old Testament talks about this in Nehemiah. And um, it's not like its former glory. And the Israelites are left with empty promises. And the Old Testament ends with promises of God bringing a servant Messiah, a Savior. And, and before the Messiah and Savior comes, there would be a, a, a one, a person who would prepare the way for the Messiah. And the book ends and the promises are unfulfilled. They go into a season of waiting, a season of longing, a, sa- a season of expectation. Hundreds of years The Israelites that lived in this land waited for God to do what he said he would do. And then eventually, another empire came into the story. We know them as the Romans. And the the Romans, they were a military superpower, an an empire unlike any other empire before it. Um, They conquered Israel 60 years before Jesus is born. General Pompey came in. I'm going to give you some history. Are you guys okay with this? I don't even care if you are. I would do it anyways. That was just being polite. (laughs) Oh, okay. So uh, they they conquer, uh, General Pompey conquers Jerusalem with a force and establishes Israel as Roman territory. The Roman Empire was unlike any other empire before it. Um, The history of the empire is one of bloodshed and brutality. The armies were unstoppable and the emperors were seen as deities and divine. When Julius Caesar, we've read about him, was, was betrayed by the Senate and murdered, his son Octavian took out to get, seek revenge on those who murdered and betrayed him. Octavian um, set out and created a war, a civil war that erupted all over the Roman Empire. And it was basically under civil war for dozens of years until Octavian defeated Mark Anthony 31 years before Jesus is born. Are you with me? Yeah. History lesson is almost over. Um, But here's the thing about what we need to know about Octavian and empires. Uh, Would you go back to... Okay, Octavian... No, let's go there. Was celebrated as the new emperor after he defeats Mark Antony. He was given the name Augustus Caesar. Caesar Augustus. Augustus means the illustrious one or the majestic one. And Augustus, uh, he... uh, There's a majestic one. That's something's wrong. His birthday became a national holiday. And um, his birth became what was... Let me read it from here because that's not actually right. I apologize for that. Um, His birthday became a national holiday. He was considered savior of the world. 31 years before Jesus is born, Caesar Augustus was given a new name, uh, the majestic one. He was considered savior of the world. His empire was called Salvation. His birthday became a national holiday, and a Roman poet named Virgil described Caesar Augustus' birth as the long-awaited new age of prosperity and peace. You see, monuments were constructed around the empire from England to Africa. Over 50,000 portraits of Caesar Augustus went as propaganda all throughout the Roman Empire with this inscription under it. Good news. We have an emperor. 
Justice, peace, security, and prosperity are ours forever. The Son of God has become King of the world. He was known as the Son of God. He was known as King of the world all before Jesus was born. Are you with me? The empire occupying this land called Israel had a king named Caesar. He was considered the high priest, the son of God, the bringer of peace. He was called Lord and his birth inaugurated a new age, a golden age of peace. And news about him was a Greek word used a uh, name called gospel. News about him spread. The word good news is where we get the word gospel. Are you with me? Does any of this sound familiar? So let's go to Luke chapter two and we'll pick up in the story of Jesus's birth. Verse one, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So two things I want to talk about in the first few verses. First is in those days and a census. Now, when we talk about in those days, we need to talk about what Luke is implying when he says those days of Caesar Augustus. There are some significant implications. The first is what the Romans called peace. You see, Romans, they came into a town, village, or or city, and they conquered everyone with a sword. Well, really not a sword, that's a figure of speech, with a massive military that couldn't be stopped. And they would come into a town town and demand submission. They would literally hold uh, hold a sword to your throat and make you swear allegiance to Caesar. And what you would do is say, Caesar is Lord. And once you surrendered as a city, as a town, as a territory of the Roman Empire, um, they would then place heavy taxation on you. As subjects to the empire, you paid tribute to Caesar through the form of taxes. Taxes were a form of worshiping Jesus, uh, worshiping Caesar, excuse me. If you denied it, if you did not accept Caesar as Lord, if you didn't submit, um, oftentimes you would revolt. And throughout, you know, Israel's occupation, the Rome, as Rome occupied as the Roman Empire occupied Israel, excuse me, there were all sorts of revolts. There were all sorts of um, insurgencies and revolutions that took place. One in particular happened right around the time of Jesus' birth. Three and a half miles from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, there was a revolt in Sepphoris, and the Romans crushed it. Let me tell you something. The Romans were really good at crushing revolts. In fact, so if you didn't confess allegiance to to Caesar, they would kill you. And they got really good at killing. In fact, they developed a torture system that would humiliate those being tortured. And it would be the most painful and worst death you could possibly go through. It's called the crucifix or crucifixion. And so if you didn't surrender to Caesar, if you didn't pay taxes, you would be killed and oftentimes crucified. Now, in Sepphoris, right around the time of Jesus' birth, there was a huge revolt and it ended with 2,000 Jewish men being crucified at once. Historians say that they didn't have enough wood to crucify that many men. They had to import timber to crucify 2,000 Jewish men. When we talk about empire... When we talk about in those days, we're talking about those kinds of days. Are you with me? Four of us. Can we come on? Let's get it. Are you with me? Census. Okay. What's census all about? Well, census is really about counting people. 
um, because counting people is about taxes and taxes is about collecting money from everyone that lived in the empire. And so um, here's here's kind of the thing. More people meant more money. And as Biggie Small says, you know, more money, more problems. You with me? Okay. Come on. How many of you love rap? Come on. Let me let me get a couple of. That's what I'm talking. I'm teaching my son early right now. The oldies, you know, some Tupac, some Biggie, some most deaf, Talib Kweli, high tech on the beat, beat, brothers and sisters. Anyone? We are in Long Beach, right? There's so much drama. Anyways. Okay. So more people. <laughs> Gosh, it's almost Christmas. Bringing it in more, more money, more problems. No, more money meant a bigger army. A bigger army meant more power. More power for the Romans meant more world conquest. More conquest meant more Roman peace. Peace defined by a sword, by forced occupation, by fear and punishment. And Caesar is Lord. Are you with me? So this is the backdrop of the Christmas story. Empire, occupied land, Roman peace, a lord and a king sitting on a throne thousands of miles away from Israel, demanding subjects to be counted. Do you get the implications of what Luke is trying to do? I do. Here we go. Verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, uh, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So Joseph also went up from the town of uh, Nazareth in Galilee. And and Luke has to qualify Nazareth because we didn't historians had no clue where Nazareth was located um, up until recently, actually, in the last 70 years, I think it is, or maybe 100 years. But uh, one of the arguments against Christianity is that they thought they made up the place Nazareth, but we actually know where it is. Um, So Luke is being very specific on where um, Joseph is from. And he says that he goes from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, what's what's significant about that? Well, what's significant is this, that Joseph comes from the line of David, making um, Jesus's claim to be a son of David a legal claim. That's true because he's legally Joseph, Joseph's son. But more than that, um, what's also hinted here is that Joseph is living hundreds of miles from what is called ancestral lands. Meaning that he belonged to the house of David, meaning his family owned property and land in Bethlehem, but he's no longer working there. He's no longer working the land. Um, And for for some reason. And so the question uh, in a traditional agrarian society, the vast majority of peasants would have been working their ancestral lands and supporting the ruling groups with a portion of their produce. I think we have a quote. I I put that up there. Maybe it's not in the the list. But the question is, why doesn't Joseph live in Bethlehem anymore? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, to travel hundreds of miles um, in your last trimester is a significant thing. Well, Joseph travels hundreds of miles to go back to his hometown. What this means is that uh, he's not working his family land. It means that he's working for a day's wage. He's a day laborer. It also means he's a migrant worker. That Joseph is going to find work. And those that aren't working their ancestral lands in the first century, the implication is that they lost their land because of debt, war or famine because of some form of injustice 
And so the story of Joseph and Mary uh, traveling hundreds of miles in the last trimester is, is simply they represent the thousands of rootless people in ancient Jewish Palestine cut loose from their ancestral lands and villages by Roman conquest or by indebtedness. Mary and Joseph are lining up in Bethlehem to enlist as subjects to a Roman empire to pay tribute to a different Lord by paying taxes. This is the backdrop of a very different kind of Christmas story. Let's just continue. So the Christmas story apparently has something to do with displaced pregnant teenage day laborers from the middle of nowhere traveling hundreds of miles to pay tribute to a foreign military superpower whose king is called the son of God and whose empire is called salvation. Interesting. This is a story about injustice. This is a story about how the world really works. This is a story about God doing something about it. Let's keep reading. While they were uh, while they were there, they're in Bethlehem now. The time came for a baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Mary gives birth to a son. Now we learned in the previous chapter the son is the son of God, the son of the Most High. His name is Jesus, which means God's salvation. He is the long-awaited Messiah, another name for king or savior. He is Lord, and his kingdom will never end, ever. And he's born in a barn, placed in a manger, which is another way of saying a feeding trough. Have you ever thought about that kind of story? That the God of the universe is lying in a feeding trough, that the king of kings is born in a barn. And there's got to be some humor in there, because I bet when he was 13 and he didn't put his stuff away, his mom would say, hey, were you born in a barn? He'd be like, yes, I was. (laughs) At least that's where my mind goes. (laughs) I think Jesus had to be the funniest man alive. I'm just saying. Like, he probably played some amazing practical jokes. We'll leave it at that. The story of, of God being born, it's a humble story. I mean, think of all the possibilities. God could have come, thunderous clouds, heavenly host, armies announcing. I mean, he doesn't do that. But then the story goes on, and this is where I get shocked. He says, verse 8, Luke, Luke wants to include this part of the story for some reason. I don't know why. He says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angels appeared to them. Okay, so there were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angels of the Lord appeared to them. So you got some shepherds. Shepherds weren't the cleanest group. They weren't the most educated group in the first century. Um, And these shepherds are the, the, the night shift shepherds. So um, some shepherds could actually afford hired hands to have them watch over their flocks at night. This is implying that it's kind of like those that can't get day jobs. They have to work at night. And and the shepherds that can't really afford to hire a hired hand, that have to sleep outside with their sheep. Shepherds in a nearby field, angels appear to them. It's not the cleanest job. It's not the most glamorous job. It's not the most effective job. They're considered kind of an outcast at this point. They would be a rough group, a different kind of group. But the angels of the Lord appear to them. 
messengers of God, heavenly hosts come announcing God's arrival and they go to some dude sleeping in some field nearby. What kind of story is this? I mean, what does it say about our God? How would you announce some great news? I mean, wouldn't you go to some king sitting on a throne? Wouldn't you go to some prophets or some priests in the temple? Maybe you go to some royal family or politician or at least someone with some potential, not some shepherds, not those guys. You would never bring the news that God is finally here. The thing you longed for to them. You don't go to those kinds of people. You don't go to those types of fellows. You don't go to the people working in the fields. Those that can't even afford hired hands or sleep in homes. You would never think to include them in the great news. Those who don't usually hear the news uh, first, these are them. You, you would never go to those guys. You wouldn't invite them to be a part of it. The Christmas story, though, tells us something different. The Christmas story tells those guys first. The guys that don't have Twitter, that don't have a a smartphone, or the guys that don't have Facebook or get those news flashes or even a computer. The guys that don't have a place to charge their phone at night. They hear it first. What kind of Christmas story are you telling? What kind of Christmas story are you living out? Who do you invite over when it's time to celebrate? The angels announced these shepherds something that they would never expect to hear. And that's what makes this story so provocative, so transcending, so powerful, so gutless. It rips us apart because that's not what we want to do with our Savior. We don't want that kind of messy Messiah. We want him clean and neat. We want him respectable, polite. We want a kind, pleasant Christmas, not a messy one. And then... Luke tells us what the the angels say, and this is what's so unexpected. And Luke is very intentional with the language he uses. He says, the angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Of course, if you saw six foot seven Dan standing behind you in the middle of the night, as if you were here last week, it would scare me. This is what they say. Don't do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Not just the Roman elite, not just those holding the sword, but everyone. Today in the town of Bethlehem, uh, in da- town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, a feeding trough. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with an angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heaven and on earth peace. On those whom, on whom his favor rests, when the angels had left, um, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, "Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about." So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a feeding trough. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had heard. Excuse me, what they had been told. Uh, them about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them but mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart and the shepherds returned to the nearby fields glorifying and praising god for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told so the angel says don't be afraid i bring you good news i bring you gospel 
I bring you the word that has been set apart throughout history to announce Caesar's birth, to announce a military victory and conquest, an announcement that usually involves forced occupation and taxation and somebody dying at the end of the sword. But this announcement is different. And it's for all people, not just those that hold the swords or those that are elite. It's for everyone. I mean, everyone. Great joy for all people. And the angels can continue on. A savior has been born to you. A Messiah, which is another word for, uh, for king in Jewish context. The Lord. Wait a second. A savior? Rome already had a savior. A king? Rome already had a king. A Lord? Rome already had a Lord. And peace? Rome already brought peace. What is going on in the story. The announcement of Jesus' birth is a direct challenge to the Roman world. It is a subversive confrontation of a different kind of good news. It's a different kind of story being told. The Christmas story is about God doing something new in this world, about giving birth to a new story. The Christmas story is about a different kind of Savior, a different kind of Lord, a different kind of peace, a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom marked not by conquest, not by domination, but, but one that's marked by sacrifice and love. It tells a story of a different kind of God, not the God you would expect, not the God that sits on thrones, although he does now. But the God that shows up to, to the people you don't expect it, the God who is born into the world in a barn, held in a feeding trough. A God who sends his only son. A God who steps back into the human story. Who doesn't leave us all alone. A God who keeps his promises like he said he would. And a God who includes the people you would never expect to include. The Christmas story isn't some kind nativity scene with a glowing Mary. And a peaceful baby Jesus. And a polite Joseph. It's not about Christmas trees. It's not about presents or Santa's little helpers. It's not about whether things are pagan or not. You see, Luke is using the exact same language and words that were used to describe Caesar. And here's why. In the Roman world, they didn't care if you worshipped other gods or other deities. As long as you included Caesar in your worship. You could worship whoever you wanted. Just include Caesar as Lord. But by the time Luke writes his gospel, him using specific language that referred to Caesar, it's forcing people to discern and decide who is Lord and who is really king. You see, you can't have two Caesars. It's either Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord. You see, what this Christmas story is about, the Christmas story is about what kind of God you worship. What kind of Lord you serve and what kind of world you choose to live in. You see, a world with land and empires, a world with rulers and kings, a world with outcasts and elite, a world with rich and poor, a world that you think works a certain way, but then kings are born in barns and saviors are found in feeding troughs. The Christmas story changes the way the world works. When, you, when we make Christmas a polite holiday, when we fill it with busyness, when we go into debt for presents, when we distract ourselves with shopping or just shopping, there's nothing wrong with just all of that stuff. We tend to miss the point and we swim in the culture of Christmas rather than subvert the empire. Christmas is subverting. We miss the provocative story that this represents. So what is a Christmas story? Christmas story is about those who've been kicked around. 
It's about those who are desperate, those who are in need. It's for those that don't have a place to call home. It's for those that can't get ahead, can't catch that break. It's about those that sleep on the streets, the poor, the outcast, those that are tired and weary from a year, those that are lost, those that are really lonely inside, those who are far off. I can't think God really is there. It's for those that have ever cried out, God, where are you? Do you even care? How could you let this happen? Will you keep your promise? Do you even know I exist? For those of you that have cried out for that, the Christmas story is yes. I know you. I'm here. I'm with you. Christmas is God's way of saying I'm here. Christmas story reorients us to the wonderful God who is here, who is with us, who challenges us, who challenges the way the world works. He challenges us to live in a different way. The Christmas story then is an invitation, but most of all, it is an announcement that God hasn't forgotten you. And you too are included. So what's our response this Christmas as we come to a conclusion? Number one, we have to recognize that there are Caesars in this world that we are, we are tempted to worship. Caesars of lust, pleasure, self, individualism, materialism, stuff, our jobs, relationships, sex, power, you name it. Insert your Caesar here. Christmas is the time where we say, nope, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Amen? The second thing is we do what the shepherds did. What would the shepherds do? WWSD. I don't know. Our only response is to return to our normal lives, to the nearby hills, and tell people about what God has done, but more importantly, reveal this story to them. You see, we have to show the world another way to live. A world, uh, not through revenge, but through forgiveness. Not through accumulation, but generosity. Not through control, but through surrender. Not just loving those who will love us back or including those that include us, but loving those that would never invite us back and love us back. Not just telling people the truth when it's easy, but becoming truth tellers. We show the way of sacrifice, service, and humility. We show the world joy in our suffering. We show the world kindness and love in the nearby hills. Our nine-to-five jobs. Our dif- with our difficult roommates, our difficult co-workers, our frustrating families. We go back to those places and we subvert the empire. And lastly, we go to our ordinary places and we glorify God and praise God for all things we've heard and seen. Our only response to this message is to worship. is to say, thank you, God. Let's stand. I invite you just to close your eyes. Invite the worship team up. Um, This is my brother, by the way. In case you thought I dyed my hair or bleached my hair. This is my younger brother and his wife, Jenny. Come on up. I'll just, you can start and I'll just invite us, lead us into some response time. Um, We're going to sing a couple songs. um, And, uh, you know, Christmas is a time where we put on our best. We look beautiful put on our Christmas sweaters, we have that, that holiday spirit, but most of the time we're really lonely and broken inside.
Um, and I don't want to miss this opportunity to say, hey, some of you are in a lot of pain and just need someone to stand next to you and say it's going to be okay, that there's another way. And so if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come down and get prayer from our prayer team. And if you're here for the first time and this is the first time you've ever heard uh, this message and you're, you want to confess Jesus as Lord, I want to invite you as well. So why don't you close your eyes and lead us in time of prayer and then we'll worship. If you need prayer, come down. I'll have the ministry sit on the stage and we'll do that together. Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.